0: You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. It is spring, and it is finally nice and warm outside. It felt like weather would hold on forever, and many of you are spending your Saturdays at the ball field. How many of you have a kid in ball, t-ball, baseball, right? Yeah. Um, Thinking about baseball, I remembered my first season of baseball. I never played t-ball. I... Immediately started into baseball, and when I got into baseball, I wasn't good. Um, My first year, especially, I was not good. And not only was I not good, I was on a not good team. (laughs) And I, I, I take responsibility for some of that, but it wasn't all my fault. My team was so bad that we lost each and every game all the way up through the season. And for a kid who was playing his first season of baseball to lose each and every game was incredibly discouraging. And it wasn't as though the games were competitive and we lost by this much. We were losing games by the run rule. You know what the run rule is, right? I mean, the the other team is so far ahead, they call the game early. Like, this is just, let's have mercy on these poor kids and send them home. So my first season of baseball hadn't been a whole lot of fun. I hadn't enjoyed it. But in the last game of the season, we had that desperation of a team that does not want to go zero wins for the year. And we played the best game we'd played all year, and we were in the game in the last inning. It was tied. And, I mean, I was only seven years old, but I think I wanted to win that game more than I had wanted anything in my life up to that point. And we got a couple guys on base, and then I was on deck, and it was like, I might get to bat, and this is not good. I'm no good. We need other people to hit the ball. The bases were loaded, and I went up to bat, and it wasn't two out, so it wasn't like the perfect scenario, but... I can still remember my dad on the other side of the fence as I went to bat, and I had been awful all season. The pitch came, and I don't think I hit the ball, I think I just put my bat out in the air, you know? (laughs) And the ball magically connected with it, and I got a hit. And it wasn't a good hit, but it was good enough for me to make it to first base, or maybe the catcher threw it over the first baseman's head and I made it. I mean, how I got there is not important, but I made it to first base. (laughs) And the guy in third came home. And not only did I get on base, but I got an RBI. And then we went out into the field, and we held them scoreless, and we won the final game of the season. And when that last out was got, you would think that we had just won the World (laughs) Series. We were ecstatic. We finally won a game. And I think that kind of shaped my... preference in sports. When I watch a, a game, I am always rooting for the underdog. And I know that most of us root for the underdog, but I really root for the underdog. And this past year, in March Madness, in the, the basketball tournament, the NCAA basketball tournament, as much as I hated for Virginia, my team, I'm from Virginia, as much as I hated for them to lose, I kind of loved it that a 16-seed underdog won. Because of this, when We moved from Nashville when I was 12. My my father was uh, transferred. We moved to to Norfolk, Virginia. We got there. I developed an affinity for the Boston Red Sox. And the reason that I love the Boston Red Sox was not because they were that great. When we moved there, they were not great. I love the Boston Red Sox because everyone on the East Coast pulled for the New York Yankees. And the New York Yankees won all of the time. I mean, especially in that season. I moved there in, in 95. They won in '96. They won the World Series in 98, they won it in 99, they won it again in 2000. And I just hated them, didn't want them to win anymore. I wanted someone who hadn't won in a while to win, and the Red Sox had not won the World Series in 84 years. So I started pulling for them, because they were, they were the underdogs by a mile. And after all of that, and after I started churn for them, they came back being three games down in the playoffs against the Yankees to go to the World Series and then they won the World Series. And I was ecstatic. The underdog had won. But you know what happened right after that? Every Yankees fan became this major historian. They could rattle off every World Series that they'd won in the last hundred years because they won 27 World Series. And suddenly it didn't matter that the Red Sox had just won in 2004. And so how many have they won? We've won 27. And do you know that I hated that fact so much? I hated the fact that the Yankees had won 27 World Series. I still hate that fact to this day. But no matter how much I hated it because I cheered for their rivals, no matter how much I hated it because they won all of the time, it wasn't any less true. I couldn't stand it. I wanted it to be untrue. I wanted to ignore the fact that it was real. But it was still true. Why? Because our feelings don't change the facts. And how we feel doesn't change reality or truth. And of all the problems of God that we're going to cover in this series of messages, I wish this one weren't true. We talk about hell I wish that I could stand before you and say, hey, don't worry about it, there is no hell, because I cringe at the thought of the punishment and judgment of hell. Even as I've prepared this message, it hasn't been emotionally satisfying at all. In fact, I was thinking this week, you know, I've kind of hogged the pulpit throughout this entire series. If somebody else wants to preach this message, nobody, okay, I'll do it. This is going to be difficult, hard. And the truth is that we we approach this subject matter the same way as we approach any other thing that's true that we wish wasn't true. I don't like the idea of hell. And that's where we need to start this morning with the recognition that we don't like it. The problem of hell is not an issue of evidence or logic, it's an issue of our own feelings, our emotional. Our emotions. For, for many people, this is deeply personal. Because if hell is a reality, we have the fear that a friend or loved one is experiencing the judgment and punishment of hell. And I'm right there with you. I want to be sensitive to that because I, I'm, that's where I'm at. Having pointed out that it's often an emotional response, our response to the idea of hell, I want you to see that if hell is real, then the last thing that we need to do is respond with the emotion of, I don't like that idea. Or I want to ignore that. So much so that if there are people that we know and love who are experiencing the punishment and judgment, the torment of hell, the last thing that they would want us to do this morning is to pretend like it doesn't exist. I want to read you a passage of Scripture that will make that clear. In Luke 16... Let me start reading in verse 19. Jesus is telling us a story. Jesus says, There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen, purple being the color of royalty and wealth, and fared sumptuously every day. He ate the best of everything every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom to heaven. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus, Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is this great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they to us that would come from hence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou would send him to my father's house, For I have five brethren that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, the books of the law, the books of the Bible. Let them hear them. He said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he, Abraham, said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, if they hear not the word of truth, neither will they be persuaded, though even one raise from the dead. As unpleasant as it may be for me to talk talk about this morning, as unpleasant as it may be for us to consider this morning, if there are people that we know and love who are facing eternal judgment and the wrath of God, the thing that they desperately want is for you to hear the truth this morning. Their prayer is that someone would tell you the truth of God's word. That some messenger would be sent of God to convince you of the dire circumstances that they face. The last thing that they would want you to do is forget about it. So, with that in mind, let me talk to you this morning about the problem of hell. I've told you the topic of hell is difficult, and for many churches, it's one that we don't talk about anymore. Peter Kreef said that of all the doctrines in Christianity, hell is probably the most difficult to defend, the most burdensome to believe, and the first to be abandoned. Bertrand Russell, that famous atheist and skeptic, said, I do not myself feel that any person who is really profoundly humane can believe in an everlasting punishment. Charles Darwin wrote that one of the reasons that he rejected Christianity and went looking for some other origin of life, looking for some other explanation to the world, was because he could not deal with the concept of hell and that his brothers and father were facing eternal punishment of God. C.S. Lewis, skeptic, turned apologetic, said there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this one if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture, and especially of our Lord's own words, and it has always been held by Christendom, and it has the support of reason. This morning I'll stand before you and say this is something that I enjoy talking about. And I'll stand before you and say that I'm excited about this truth. I stand before you telling you this is grave and serious, and the gravity of this moment is so important, and I hope that our hearts and our minds will be open to the truth and the logic of God's Word. And I want to tackle this discussion from those same points that Lewis makes. The doctrine of hell has the full support of Scripture. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to see that the Bible teaches of a place of everlasting punishment. And we could talk about, at length, the veracity of Scripture, how that God's Word rings true, that if it was something that you were going to make up, there's a lot of stuff that you wouldn't put in it. If you wanted to make a book that was just supremely popular, you wouldn't make a book lying about the afterlife, saying that some people are going to face eternal punishment. If you're going to make up a book lying about the life of Christ, trying to convince Jews in that day, you would not have the first people to find the tomb empty be women who can't even testify in court in that day and age. If you're going to make up a book lying about, the, 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 lying about Christ and his life and his mission, you wouldn't write about yourself making all kinds of mistakes like Peter and Matthew and the others did. It rings true. What we find from the, the Word of God is that Hell and the topic of everlasting judgment and punishment is something that is regularly commented on. And there are many people who fall in the camp of liking some of the truths of the Bible, but not all of them. And we can't play editor with God's word. We can't pick the topics that we like from the Bible and dismiss the others. For many people, they, they will say things like, Well, I like Jesus, but I'm, I'm not really into all that Christianity and organized religion. New Age thinker Deepak Chopra was, was interviewed on television and he said that the, the problem with Christianity is that Christians need to get back to the core teachings of Jesus that are found in the Sermon on the Mount and let go of all of this judgmental stuff that they've added. He's saying that if, if we just focus on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, here's the thing, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount talks about hell. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount includes admonitions like this one. Matthew 5, 29. If thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for that one of thy members should perish, and not thy whole body should be cast into hell. You know what Jesus was saying? It'd be better to go through life with only one eye and then go to heaven than to go through life with both eyes and end up in hell. That's a harsh teaching. I know that in many people, their mind, they don't think of Jesus as teaching those kinds of things. But 13% of Jesus' parables and stories centered on the subject of hell. Not just judgment in general, but hell specifically. People sometimes think that the Old Testament is the portion of the Bible that portrays God as angry and dealing with sin. And that the New Testament comes, and then it tells us all about God's love and how kind He is. The truth is that most of what we know about hell comes from the lips of Jesus Christ Himself. That when He arrives on the scene, He is the one that begins to tell us about the flame and the worm that dies not. He is the one that gives us the fuller picture on hell. Some people think that Old Testament God is angry and New Testament God is loving, but that's not the case at all. Mark Clark in his book, The Problem of God, says, if we say that the love of God is emphasized to a greater extent in the New Testament, we have to acknowledge that the wrath of God is also ratcheted up. Have you you seen a picture of yourself recently and thought, man, okay, I need to lose a couple pounds? Or see a picture of yourself and say, wow, I'm going to go home and burn that shirt and never wear it again because it makes me look pretty rough. Jesus was as genuine as they come. And today we live in an age of filters and spanks and age-defying creams and trying to portray ourselves in the very best light and wearing clothes that accentuate the best features of our body. We live in an age of trying to present ourselves and portray ourselves in a way that is appealing and appeasing to other people. But Jesus didn't do that in his physical demeanor. Scripture says that he he was a man that we would not notice by his looks. He is the God of the universe. He got to choose the model of body that he came to the universe in, and he came as an average Joe. He wasn't worried about what everybody thought. And the same is true in the things that he taught the message that he preached. He didn't say any of those things that were comfortable. Last Sunday night, we looked at the passage where he calls the people who were sitting in the church that day a generation of snakes to their face. He didn't hold back. He was absolutely genuine. And we live in an an age where everybody wants to try to be on the right side of history. And that's where we say, okay, this is where I think popular opinion is going. I think everybody's going to think this way on this in five years or ten years, so I'm going to have that opinion so I can be on the right side of history. Jesus was not on the right side of history. Jesus said things that were shocking in that day that we we wouldn't find that shocking today. Jesus said things in that day that weren't shocking, but today we find scandalous. He wasn't concerned with how people perceived him. He wasn't concerned with what people thought. He was concerned with being absolutely true and genuine. He didn't hold back. And it was the lips of Jesus the words of Jesus that make it absolutely clear that hell is real. How much was Jesus unconcerned with what people thought about what he said? He said enough that they killed him for things that he said. He told us as it is. He wasn't concerned with what would be popular. He was concerned with what was true. And this morning, I, I could... I could get up before you and just say things that are easy to hear because that would be more comfortable. That would be easier. But that's not my job and that's not my role. The reason that I'm here is to tell you the truth. And if I failed to do that, I'd not only fail you in the long run, I'd fail the calling that the Lord has placed on me and I'd fail the prayers of those who are experiencing God's punishment and are begging someone, please warn my family and friends so they do not come to this awful place. Secondly, the doctrine of hell has been supported throughout Christendom. We need to recognize this morning that the reason that we feel the way about hell that we do is very much due to our cultural moment and our place in the world. You see, in our, in our place of peace and prosperity in this current modern age, it's much more difficult for us to think about a God of wrath and judgment. But go back 60 years and talk to our grandparents who saw the atrocities that happened in concentration camps and ask them if they think there should be a hell. And they would say, most definitely. Because the people who did that to others, who took innocence and executed them and exterminated them like vermin, there has to be some punishment awaiting for them. Go to people in our present age on the other side of the world in Africa who've had their children stolen away, their sons forced to be children soldiers, their daughters forced into prostitution, and ask them if they think there's a hell. And they will tell you that they most dogmatically hope that there's a hell, that there will be some punishment for the people who have done incredible atrocities to their families. You see, while we right here in America in 2018 are uncomfortable with the idea of hell, they take comfort in the idea of hell. That there will be someone who brings judgment and wrath upon the people who brought horrible injustice and pain and suffering to those that are innocent. Christian theologian Miroslav Wolf, who witnessed great death and destruction in his own country in Croatia, said it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of this thesis of God's refusal to judge and a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent. It will invariably die. And whereas we, in our cultural moment, might be be offended by the idea of hell, people in other places and in other times would be drastically offended with the idea that everyone goes to heaven and that there is no judgment or punishment awaiting those who have done wrong. We are shaped by our experiences, by our culture, by our current age, just as me pulling for the Red Sox is probably tied in some way to my first baseball team winning in the last game of the year. Our current culture has impacted our perspective, influenced our ideas. And though you don't realize that you are constantly being influenced by the media, in our retreat last weekend, Brandon shared with us that the average person is, is receiving media eight hours a day. Some of us, we are, we're doubling up because while we're watching TV, we're also looking at our phones. While we're driving, we're listening to the radio or a podcast, we are constantly being influenced by this culture. And that has shaped our ideas. But while this culture influences our perception of reality and our perspective of truth, it just influences our perception of them. It doesn't change the truth or reality. And so what our current cultural moment thinks is true or feels is true is not necessarily true. In this skewed perception of the world, a couple of ideas have sprung forth. And I'm talking about the, the, the idea of hell is supported by logic and reason. That if we'll think about it without the lens of our current culture, we'll see that it is reasonable to expect that there will be some judgment or punishment for wrongdoing. And so there are three ideas that have sprung forth out of our current cultural moment when it comes to hell. First is the idea of universalism. Universalism is the idea that we all end up in heaven. No one goes to hell. And it's born out of people who don't understand God's wrath and His justice. They can only think of God in terms of His love and His grace. Universalism says we all go to heaven one day. That no one faces punishment or judgment. Recently the Pope gave reason to give people reason to think that he believes in universalism. By the way, it used to be that when you wanted to say something was for sure, you would say, Is the Pope Catholic? I'm like, yeah, he's definitely Catholic. Now, is the Pope Catholic? I don't know. because um, he's saying things that, that aren't the, the the doctrine of the Catholic Church. So one of the things he's recently said is that he he, he believes that there's this possibility of universalism. And in our Western culture, in Europe and the U.S., people are like, that's awesome that the Pope says we all go to heaven. But I don't think that was very comforting in South America for the Pope to say, everybody goes to heaven. I don't think that was comforting in the Middle East or in North Korea for the Pope to say, everybody goes to heaven. Some people struggle with the idea of everyone going to heaven And so they go to the other end. And instead of saying that they believe in universalism, they believe in annihilation. And annihilation is, after we die, that's just it. That's the end. When you die, you cease to exist. But that doesn't answer the problem. It doesn't answer the question. Because if after we die, we just all cease to exist, there is still no judgment for wrong. That means Hitler, and all that he did, he died. He doesn't have to answer for all that he's done. Someone who forces children into slavery, they die. There is no judgment for what they've done. And it also robs us of hope. It robs us of hope of that, that child who only had a few years and was sick. And they pass, and that's it. We believe the gospel. It gives us a hope that all wrongdoing will be justly judged. And gives us hope that all who are in Christ and innocent will be made right. And so when I stand at the casket of a young girl who's passed away, what kind of hope would it be to give them to say, listen, don't worry about it, because once we die, we're just gone. There's no hope in that. And even people who don't believe the Bible know that there's no hope in that. They'd never say that at a casket. We all want to hope that we'll see one another again, that those who were sick and infirm, that they will have a new body, that they'll live an existence that is free from the cancer, that is free from the disease, that is free from the deformity, It's free from the brokenness. You see, What the Bible teaches us is that God is going to make all things right. And that He is going to judge sin. Jesus makes it pretty clear that there's going to be severities in hell. He says it'll be far more tolerable on that day for these cities who had opportunity to turn and would not. It'll be far more tolerable on that day for those who have failed to respond and for those who have rebelled against God's truth. And I wouldn't want to make any of those decisions. But God steps up to the plate. He says, I am the just and righteous judge. And I will make all things right. The third idea that's come up in this current cultural moment is the figurative idea of hell. People who believe the figurative idea of hell say that Jesus uses apocalyptic language. He speaks of fire and brimstone, but it's just figurative. And they would say that because Satan is spirit and hell was prepared for Satan and his demons, how can fire be a place of judgment for a spirit? It's just, it's figurative. Let's say, let's say that that's correct. That this, the language of hell being a place of fire is just figurative. Figures in Scripture don't give us a warning of something that's not that big of a deal. They give us a warning of something that is a horrible thing. Think about it this way. Have you ever seen that warning label on something that maybe has a belt like a lawnmower and it shows the guy's hand like in the gears of it and his fingers are all... I mean, just looking at that label makes me cringe. Oh, that's horrible. You know what's much worse than that label? Is if you actually stick your hand in there. The actual experience will be far worse. You go to the mall this week... And you see there's a guy mopping the floor, and on his bucket, there's a little yellow symbol of a guy slipping in a puddle of water and hitting his head. He's going, oh, that looks painful. You know what's much more painful? Actually slipping and hitting your head. And so if Jesus is only using figurative language, which I don't believe that he is, he's pointing to something which is far worse than his figurative language. And some people think, well, well, hell won't be that bad, and you'll get used to it, and my buddies will be there. My friends are going to be there. Jesus speaks of hell as being a dark place, and he's, he's telling us it's going to be a place of isolation, that we'll be alone. And it's a place without God. It's absence of, absent of God, which means that there are no common graces. What are common graces? Common graces are the good things here in this life that God has made possible. So, for example, in the passage that we read of this man who is in hell, he says, please, send Lazarus to dip his finger in water so that he may drop it to my tongue. Why does he feel that way? Because not only is hell a place of torment and flame, it is a place where there is no water. There is no common grace of water. And there are many things in this life that we take for granted as common graces that with the absence of God will be absent as well. There will be no common graces. There will be no, no possibility of connection with God. He will be completely absent. And even if hell was just a blank room with nothing else and God being subtracted from the equation, that would be an awful existence. Life without the common graces. And some of you are saying, well, okay, I hear what you're saying, but I just can't believe that a loving God would send someone to hell. And you know what? I agree with you. Because hell wasn't meant for us. Matthew 25, 41 says, Then shall he say also to them on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell was built for evil. It was built for Satan and his angels. And God doesn't want any of us to go there. For this reason, people were complaining to Peter, and they were like, listen, you said that Jesus is coming back, and he hasn't come back yet. What's taken him so long? And this is what Peter's response to them was in 2 Peter chapter, uh, chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. He's not, he's not dropping the ball, as some may count slackness, but is long suffering to usward. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. God doesn't want anybody to go there. He is not willing that any should perish. So why why does He send people there? He doesn't send anyone there, but He allows people to go there if that is their wish. If they constantly reject Him, He will not force Himself upon anyone. Why does he give us yet another day, another day, another day to continue to rebel against him because he's not willing that any should perish. And there are things that are happening in this world that I wish that God would come right now and he'd put a stop to the pain and the suffering, put a stop to the horrible things that are happening, but He's not because he's giving you one more day to turn from that life, from that punishment, from that judgment and come back to him. And he is so passionate for it. There was nothing, nothing that he would hold back. There is no degree that he would not go to to keep us from that judgment, even to the degree that he gave his one and only son to make the way possible so that we did not have to plunge headlong into eternal destruction. God does not want anybody to go there But for the person who rejects God and says, I do not want you in my life, I do not want your rules, I do not want your leading, I do not want your presence, God will not force himself upon anyone. And he allows us to choose day in and day out, moment by moment, Sunday to Sunday, Monday to Monday, Friday to Friday, how we will live. And when he says, depart from me, he's saying, go because you never knew me. You did not want me. And I will not force myself upon him. My grandfather is a stern man. He will always tell you what he thinks. No matter if it's popular or not. And there have been many occasions where what he thought and what he said was extremely unpopular. But this I have always known about my grandfather is 100% genuine. And many people know that side of him. But the side that I know is the side that is why he is so blatantly honest. He is incredibly passionate. And I have watched him tear up and cry as he shares the gospel with someone The message of Jesus Christ with someone that he has been talking to for 25 years. Someone that he has been praying for for decades. I will call him on the phone and he will ask me to pray for that person. Because while he is blatantly honest and absolutely genuine with who he is, he's passionate for people. And in that, I see a picture of our Lord. Absolutely genuine and true, but fully compassionate, not willing that any should perish, but that all should turn in repentance. I I don't like this truth, but I believe it wholeheartedly. And it shapes my life. Not that I live in fear. You see, I could try to scare you this morning. I could, I could try to make you fear death and fear hell and fear flame. And maybe I could convince you to say a prayer because you're scared. And I could bring you to the place that you'd put your faith in the marshmallow man because you don't want to go to that place. But a place to turn from is not enough. We need someone to turn to if you'll turn to Christ, he'll welcome you with open arms. He's not willing that any should perish, and he's giving us yet another day, another week, another moment to turn to him. And it will not be fear of hell that persuades you. It will be a love of a Savior who gave himself for you to save you from that judgment, that punishment. That drives my life. There's so many things I want to say to you this morning. I want to say to you these these past several weeks. Because as much as I hate the idea of you heading in that direction towards hell, I love the idea of you heading towards a Savior who loves you and wants to bring restoration into your life. And I am far from perfect, and I make a mess of things, and I say things backwards, but this is my heartbeat, and this is my desire. So much so that if if somebody calls me on Tuesday at 4 o'clock and says, listen, we can't be at the jail tonight, and there's an opening, I will go. Why? Because I don't want anybody to go to hell. And I want everyone to know Christ. That's That's my desire for you today. That's why I've tried to be painfully honest with you today. I don't want to scare you. I don't want to make you uncomfortable. I want to lead you away from destruction and punishment and to the Savior's love. Aspire his forward of prayer.